You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies, helping you to take your health to the next level. I'm your host, Kathy Biasse, and I'm a holistic nutritionist and a professional cancer coach. Today, we are discussing the connection between the brain and obesity with our guest, Dr. Stefan Guianet. Dr. Guianet is a former researcher in the fields of neuroscience and obesity. He is the author of The Hungry Brain, a general audience book about the neuroscience of overeating and obesity that was called Essential by the New York Times Book Review. He is the founder and director of Red Pen Reviews, which publishes the most informative, consistent, and unbiased reviews of popular nutrition books available. The ever-evolving understanding of the brain has led researchers to a greater appreciation of its connection to obesity, and this has resulted in not only more effective diet and lifestyle protocols, but also in the development of targeted pharmaceuticals to help clinically obese people to lose weight. Today, we talk about the connection between the brain and obesity. Is there, you know, what the pharmacological approach and pathways are to treating obesity, how the gut is involved, and many other very informative uh, points with Dr. Guiane. Do stay tuned. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Find it hard to forgive Just because it's easier to hold on Doesn't mean it's good for me Looking for a sense of control But it's letting my pain define me It's getting in the way of who I actually want to be It's never too late to change Let go, never look back don't wanna be a prisoner of my past anymore So I'll free my soul Keep moving forward Forgive for a search of me Focus on my future I've got one life, wanna make it count Accept the past, gotta love myself So I'll free my soul Keep moving forward Gotta own my side of the story And take all the lessons I learned with me Lost time never comes back So why do I keep playing it in my head When it takes away from the joy of who I am today It's never too late to change Let go, never look back don't wanna be a prisoner of my past anymore So I'll free my soul Keep moving forward Forget for what's hurting me Focus on my future I've got one life, wanna make it count Accept the past, gotta love myself So I'll Get stuck in the past But no one should stay there forever Don't wanna miss out on new memories 
so I'm gonna forget and find out who I'm supposed to be. So I'll free my soul. Keep moving forward. Forget who said to me. Focus on my future. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our show today has been recorded, so no opportunity for calling in. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub RMC on those locations. Stefan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kathy. It's a real interesting topic. Uh, you know, we talk about obesity. We're going to be talking about the the brain connection to it, which um, you know your book very much went into. But first of all, I think it's really an interesting path that you've taken to get to this specialty that you have, being in a background of neuroscience. What led you to make the connections between the brain and obesity? Yeah, so I've always been fascinated by neuroscience. The brain is more than anything else, the organ that makes us who we are. And it's also one of the last great remaining scientific frontiers. There's a lot we still don't understand about the brain. And so it's a very um, interesting field to get into. And I was, uh, I did my graduate research at the University of Washington studying neurodegenerative disease. And I was working on a relatively rare condition, and in fact, quite rare condition called spinocerebellar ataxia type seven, and essentially started to feel like I wanted to study something that was more impactful. And at the same time, I was also interested in health and nutrition. And I started learning, started reading a little bit more about the role of the brain in body fatness and in obesity. And that's when I learned that actually the brain has a lot to do with body fatness. And I took my research in a different direction for my postdoc and went into a lab that was studying the neuroscience of obesity. And while I was there, I learned a lot of things that I think were both really important about understanding how obesity works and the role of the brain, and also that weren't really making it to the public. So I was learning all this information that wasn't really trickling down into the public sphere. And my perception is that that was allowing all kinds of harebrained ideas to proliferate because the science wasn't really getting there. And so that was my motivation for writing my book. Why wasn't the science getting there? This is a standard thing in all areas of, of research, right? It takes so much time between the research and getting it down to the people. Yeah, I think you know, there's a lot of science being done on a lot of things. I think it's just hard to be aware of it all. Mm -hmm. And the brain is a complicated organ too. So it's, it's pretty complicated. So I think that's part of it. And I think part of it is just chance. Like there wasn't, there weren't a lot of people who were trying to do science communication in these areas. So I was kind of the person who was at the right time and place to be able to write this book. And what was the reception of The Hungry Brain? Oh, it's been good. You know, it's not a number one New York Times bestseller, but um, reception has been quite good. Um, I think we've sold uh, over 10,000 copies. And um, I think it's actually been quite influential in the public conversation around obesity and eating behavior. It's, it's such a, you know, first, uh, before we move ahead with, with the discussion of this, what is the clinical definition of obesity? Yeah, so you can 
use different definitions and some of them are better than others. The most common definition is based on body mass index, which is essentially your body weight corrected for your height. Cause obviously tall people are heavier, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're fatter. And so body mass index, um, above 25 is, uh, considered overweight above 30 is class one obesity above 35 is class two obesity above 40 is uh, class three obesity. And in your studies and over the year, how long have you been in this, this field of study? Yeah. So I should clarify that I'm not currently an academic researcher anymore, but I was doing research for about 11 years. Well, we're getting going to get into what you're doing currently because it's also extremely interesting. But the topic of obesity, um, when it comes to the brain, must lead to different ideological therapies when it comes when it comes to treating people with obesity. What are standard therapies that you think really need a revamping or remodeling of? Well, I think, you know, at, at this point, we have better tools for medical management of obesity than we have ever had. So, and really the, the main reason is these new drugs, the GLP-1 receptor agonists like Wegovy and Munjaro. Um, these drugs are very effective for causing weight loss and they do so by targeting the brain. Basically, if you you know, if, if people go on a diet, usually they won't lose a lot of weight. They will regain uh, typically most of the weight they lost. And the reason is that there are regulatory systems in the brain that are fighting it. So how do you, how do you cause more weight loss and more sustainable weight loss? You target the regulatory systems in the brain. And that's what these drugs are doing. And so I think the, you know, I think there are many different ways to lose weight and most of them work to some degree or another. Some of them are more effective than others. Some of them may have harmful side effects. Others may not, but I think with these drugs being available now, it's kind of causing me and I think everybody to kind of like recalibrate what is an effective treatment for obesity, because before for most people, basically you either do diet and lifestyle, or you get bariatric surgery, but there's not a whole lot in between. There are some, there were some weight loss drugs, but they're just not that great. And so now we have this third option. That's really great. And it's kind of bringing, you know, it's, it's kind of causing us to recalibrate and reframe what the effectiveness of diet and lifestyle approaches are. And I would say, you know, unless we're talking about best in class, intensive diet and lifestyle approaches, it's probably, you know, not going to give people the weight loss that they want if they currently have obesity. Well, within the, the context of your research, would you classify obesity as a neurodegenerative disease? I would not classify it as a neurodegenerative disease. Uh, you know, diseases that let me give some context here because I was involved in some research suggesting that in animals and people with obesity, there is sign, there are signs of uh, inflammation and possibly some damage in the part of the brain that regulates body weight. So, you know, we have these animal models of obesity and we can look in their brains and we can see that there's inflammation and kind of a, a stress response would, would be a good way to, to put it. There's some kind of stress or insult happening in that area. And so we were asking the question, could this be involved in causing the obesity? And, um, but, you know, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's, things like that. Those are diseases where you really like, you get marked, you get marked degeneration and death of neurons. Like that's really the hallmark of those diseases. Whereas for obesity, it's clear that neurodegeneration is not a hallmark. Even if there is some kind of stress response, 
in that part of the brain. It's, I wouldn't call it a neurodegenerative disease. Are the brains different? Are there more receptors on the brain for certain things? What is the connection between the brain and obesity then? Yeah. So, you know, I think this is a connection that is not necessarily obvious to people, but when you start to explain it a little bit, I think it becomes more obvious. So the brain is, um, first of all, is the organ that generates behavior. So all behaviors that you do are generated by the brain. And so all of your eating behavior, what you eat, how much you choose to eat, those are all things that are resulting from brain activity. And so if you think there's some connection between how much and what we eat and our body fatness, which obviously there is, then the brain is playing an important role. And, you know, other behaviors too, like how you use your body, those are important, how much physical activity you get. And then the part that's a little bit less obvious to a lot of people is that there's actually a regulatory system for body fatness in the brain. So in the same way that the brain regulates blood pressure and body temperature and a lot of other things, there is the part of the brain called the hypothalamus that regulates your, your body fatness. So, and that's, that's a really important concept because that is the thing that is altered primarily in obesity. So you see that people who have obesity are actually regulating around a higher level of body fatness. So in other words, the heavier body is kind of the new normal to the brain and the brain will fight attempts to lose weight by increasing hunger, by reducing metabolic rate, by increasing your, the amount of attention you're paying to calorie dense foods and things like this. And it's, it's all non-conscious. Most of the stuff that happens in the brain is non-conscious. So just like your brain regulates your body temperature without you, you know, being aware of it or having much control over it, your brain regulates your body fatness and your appetite in the same way. So it's not like people are deciding, Hey, I want to sabotage my own diet, my own weight loss diet by eating more. It's more like you just have, you just feel hungrier and you feel more tempted and you're, you know, feeling colder because your body's not making as much heat. And so, um, and so that's really a key issue that the research has identified and that we have to address in treating obesity is this elevated set point. I call it, that's kind of a controversial term, but basically the fact that people are defending a higher level of body fatness. So that's what, that's really what makes it so hard. It's one of the key things that makes it so hard to lose a lot of weight and keep it off. Well, what, what I'm missing here is then, is this neuro, um, th this tendency of the brain to hold on to calories, to crave certain foods for, to impact, impact our cravings. Is this a learned experience or is there an interplay between genetics and environment and experiences? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there is a learned component to it, or at least learning contributes to it. And this is something I talk about a lot in my book. Basically, um, we, our brains are designed to respond motivationally to certain, certain nutrients. Basically, our brains are set up to love sugar and to love fat and to love starch and to love salt and a couple of other things. And when you eat foods that have high concentrations of those substances, especially when they're all mixed together in a really calorie dense context, that causes a lot of dopamine release in the brain. And dopamine is our motivation and learning chemical in the brain. It's the thing that causes us to have a craving and to have a stronger craving next time you encounter that same food, you know, to learn cravings, basically to experience cravings and to learn what to crave and what not to crave. That's all about dopamine. And so, you know, if you're, 
for example, a kid growing up in an environment where you're eating a lot of highly palatable calorie dense processed foods, you are setting your brain is going to be set up to uh, crave those foods as you get older. And so, you know, I think that's an important thing is we're surrounded by all these foods that really release a lot of dopamine in the brain. And so those we tend to have higher motivation to consume those foods, even if we're not hungry. So if you think about like, you know, why do why why are most people prepared to eat ice cream and a brownie after dinner, even though they're not hungry anymore? Like you could have, let's say, steak and potatoes and a salad and you could eat your fill and not be hungry at all. And then, you know, you wouldn't eat another potato, but you're ready to eat hundreds of calories of ice cream, right? So it's not a need for energy. It's not hunger that's driving you at that point. It's something else. Part of the reason, part of the explanation for that is that that ice cream has stuff in it that your brain really wants on a deep visceral evolutionary level. That's stuff that your brain really wants because those are the food properties that helped your distant ancestors to survive. And so, um, and so, yes, I think learning does have a lot to do with it in, in the sense that I just explained. Well, then with the advent of our understanding of neuroplasticity and the ability to learn, um, can we, as part of a therapy, for losing weight, target changing those pathways, or is that a foregone, you know, something that's unattainable? No, I think you can, you can target that and you should target that. So one of the things that's nice about this process of dopamine release and learning um, and craving by the brain is that your brain over time will forget these associations, or at least not your brain will stop responding to them in the same way. So if you don't keep exposing yourself on a regular basis to that stimulus, to that food, then your brain kind of stops caring about it after a while. And the analogy here is a smoker. So someone who smokes cigarettes, you know, any, any addictive drug is a drug that increases dopamine. That's uh, dopamine is the reason some drugs are addictive. So cigarettes increase dopamine. Someone who's addicted to cigarettes, if they quit, they're going to really want to smoke a cigarette the day after they quit, right? They're going to have a really strong motivational drive to smoke a cigarette. And it's going to be really hard for them not to. A week later, if they have succeeded in not smoking at all, they're still going to want to smoke, but it's going to be more tolerable. A month later, they're probably not going to be thinking about it that much anymore. And a year later, a lot of people are just disgusted by cigarettes. And so there's this process of gradual letting go that the brain does if you're not continually re-upping that association. And so um, we can do that with food. And obviously, you know, we ha you have to eat something, right? So it's not the case of, you know, not eating any food, but there are certain types of foods that are particularly problematic where people have a hard time controlling their eating behavior around those foods. They have a strong craving, they have really, you know, strong eating drive. And if the food is around, they're going to have a hard time controlling their behavior around it. Well, if that food is not around for an extended period of time, months or a year or more, that is going to fade. And then they could potentially be around that food and not have that really strong urge to eat it. But at that point, if you start eating it again, it will come roaring back. So it has to be kind of maintained. So, okay. So then what is the impact of the brain on hormones like leptin and ghrelin? Yeah. So I would say, you know, it's kind of the other way around. It's what is the impact of those hormones on the brain? Because those those are signals that inform the brain of the body's energy status. So the brain, you know, you can think of it kind of like a thermostat where the thermostat is in your house is measuring temperature 
to know how to regulate the temperature of the house, right? And if it senses that the temperature drops, then it knows to kick on the heat, but it has to be measuring to know that. And so the brain in the same way is constantly measuring your body's energy status to know how to regulate your hunger and your satiety and, and everything else that relates to your, your, your body's energy status. And the long-term, the main long-term energy store is your body fat. Body fat is by far the biggest, um, energy store in the body. And so the brain really wants to know how much fat you have on your body. And the way it knows that is the hormone leptin, the levels of leptin in circulation are proportional to the amount of fat on your body. So that's basically the brain measuring the amount of fat on your body so that it knows how to regulate everything that it regulates to maintain that fat mass in where the brain wants it to be to keep, keep the amount in the brain, in the, in the range that the brain considers to be optimal. And so leptin is really the thing that connects fat mass to the brain, but there are a lot of other hormones and neural signals that connect what's going on in the digestive tract to the brain. So you mentioned ghrelin, that one comes from the stomach. There's a bunch of other ones too that come from the small intestine and even the large intestine. And those just provide a lot of information to the brain about what food you've eaten, what's going on in your digestive tract, which is obviously another important piece of information about the body's energy status. Absolutely. So basically, yeah. So you have these short-term signals related to meals. You have the long-term signal of leptin related to body fatness. All of that gets integrated by the brain when the brain is making its decisions about how to regulate your energy status. Well, I think if nothing else has come from the first half of the show, it's an opportunity to discover different areas of treatment paths of, you know, from, from therapy with experiences down to understanding the value of proper nutrition. So I think what, what you have done and what your book has done is opened up a whole other avenue of conversation and a whole other area of possibilities when it comes to this area of obesity and of treating it. When we get back, we're going to talk to Stefan about his other passion. And before that, though, we are going to do the gut connection with the brain, something that I am very passionate about. So everyone will be back in just a few minutes. I was searching, I was looking for meaning. I was wondering, desperately trying only to see I have nothing missing. Who said, who said, I have to find who I am? Who said, who said, that I am lost to begin with? I am already enough. Everything I need is within me. Each morning when I wake up, I'm grateful for I'd always be starving for more affection The wrong attention only to feel like I am nothing Who said, who said Oh, 
You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Dr. Stephan Guillenet. And you gave us a little introduction to the connection, um, Stefan, of the gut and the brain. Um, this is new, yet not so new, but, you know, within the sphere of obesity and weight loss, uh, it, it's relevant to talk about. So can you dive a bit deeper into that for us? Yeah, absolutely. So the connection between the gut and the brain when it comes to body fatness and the regulation of body fatness is very, very important. So as I said before, the brain regulates the body's energy status based on signals of both long-term energy status, which would be measuring your body fat stores through the hormone leptin and short-term energy status, which means it's measuring whatever's in your gut from the food that you've eaten. So that latter part is the gut brain connection and it's huge. So there are many connections both through hormones and through nerve pathways from the gut to the brain that bring lots of information to the brain about what and how much you have eaten. And that stuff all gets integrated in a part of the brain called the brainstem, which is the part that decides whether you've eaten enough or not, that I call it the satiety center. So that part of your brain integrates all of these signals. And when it feels like you've had enough, then it turns off your motivation to eat. You feel full. You don't feel interested in eating food anymore. It doesn't taste as good anymore. And you push away from the table and do something else. Usually people kind of intuitively assume that we stop eating because the stomach gets full because that's kind of what it feels like, right? But in fact, our stomachs can hold much more food typically than, than what we eat at most meals. And so really what that feeling is, is the brain saying you've had enough based on, you know, the brain's own criteria for what enough is. And so um, so that gut brain connection is very important. And, uh, another reason why we know it's so important is that the gut brain connection is the target of the most effective 
obesity therapies that we have, the most effective weight loss therapies that we have. So one that's been around for a long time is bariatric surgery, which uh, alters the digestive tract and causes massive weight loss. So typically you would see for the, for the best in class surgeries, you would see about a one third loss of body weight initially. And then over time, a few years later, it'll be maybe a quarter relative, a quarter, like a 25% loss of body weight relative to initial weight. So these, these surgeries are right now the most effective weight loss methods that we have. And they work not by restricting the amount that you can eat. You know, people think, well, it's shrinking my stomach. I can't fit as much food. That's actually not how they work. They actually work by changing those gut brain signals so that you don't even want to eat more. So if, you know, if it were just restricting the stomach so that you couldn't eat more, then people would feel miserable. They would feel like they were starving, right? Because they want to eat more, but they can't every day. But that's actually not how they feel. They feel like they're eating enough and they're, and the weight is dropping off. So there's a real change in the gut brain communication that happens as a result of these surgeries. And um, to add further evidence to that, now we have this new drug class that I mentioned, the GLP-1 receptor agonists, which include uh, Wegovy and Munjaro, that is semaglutide and terzepatide. And these are drugs that are based on a gut-brain hormone called GLP-1. And these drugs basically are the GLP-1 hormone that's been modified in a few ways, but it's basically, that's the backbone of it is this actual hormone that's secreted by your, your small intestine. And so, um, and basically that, that signal goes and it plugs into the part of your brain that regulates your food intake. And it makes you want to eat less because that's a satiety hormone. It's released when you eat food. And so it's the signal going to your brain. It's your, the drug is basically like turning that dial way up, way past what actual food would do and saying, you know, telling your brain, you don't need additional food. And, um, it works really well. It, it decreases people's calorie intake by quite a bit, decreases their appetite and their kind of cravings. And it causes a loss of body weight, these drugs anywhere between 15 and, and 20% of body weight in people with obesity. So just to put that into perspective, best in class diet and lifestyle weight loss approaches do something like 5% in the average person, which is good, but it, these drugs do like three to four times what you would typically see in diet and lifestyle, uh, approaches. So they're not quite to where bariatric surgery is yet, but they're getting there. Well, that, that can be a slippery slope. Um, are there side effects to these medications? Are they well-controlled because we all know the weight loss industry is uh, booming always, always will be, I imagine. Um, and you know, these drugs getting into the wrong hands, could it be detrimental to health? I mean, certainly if they got into the wrong hands, there's no doubt about that. You know, you wouldn't want someone who doesn't have excess body fat using them to, you know, someone with body image problems, losing excessive weight, you know, no doubt about that. They need to be, uh, prescribed by, uh, a doctor. Um, but I think, you know, these drugs have been studied really thoroughly. So this drug class has been around actually for, I think, 17 years now. The early versions of it were actually diabetes drugs and didn't cause that much weight loss. It's only the more recent ones that are really effective for weight loss. But this drug class has been around for 17 years. Everything we know about it suggests that it's very safe. And um, it does have side effects the most important ones are actually beneficial. So it reduces cardiovascular events like heart attack and stroke. 
about as effectively as frontline treatments like uh, statin drugs, which are cholesterol lowering drugs. So it's actually quite effective at reducing heart attacks. It reduces uh, the risk of developing diabetes. And um, in people who have diabetes currently, it helps regulate their blood sugar and it reduces the ri overall risk of, of dying. So and to so, be clear though, when you say the positive effects on cardiovascular system, this is within the context of weight loss. So we're talking about the benefits of weight loss on the cardiovascular system, on um, sugar metabolism, on people that have type two diabetes, correct? Well, this is actually, this, this was actually a really big surprise to the field because I, I would have guessed that that was correct. But in fact, what the trials show is that the ability of these drugs to protect the heart is actually not dependent on the weight loss. So the weight loss probably adds, you know, an additional benefit, but within this drug class, even versions of these drugs that don't cause weight loss that just help regulate blood sugar, even those are protective of the heart. So this was a surprise to me, but that is what the, the data suggest. And, and by the way, when we're talking about the data, we're talking about a number of really high quality randomized controlled trials. So this is the highest standard that you can achieve for, uh, for evidence for a treatment like this. So in terms of how much weight loss they cause and how much they protect the heart, we actually have really high quality evidence on this. Now I do want to talk about, you, you know, you were asking particularly about negative side effects. So I do want to talk about those too because there are negative side effects. And the main one is that people um, will experience gastrointestinal distress. So diarrhea or constipation or nausea, vomiting, those are really very common when people first get on the drug. So there is an adaptation period that people have to get through when they're you have to slowly escalate the dose little by little to, to kind of minimize this. Um, but at first there are these symptoms that can be quite unpleasant, but most people that goes away for most people. So for most people, after they're adapted to the drug, they no longer have these types of symptoms. And it's actually, actually very few people discontinue the drug due to adverse effects. So there are some people, you know, it does happen, but it's, it's not typical that people would say, ah, this, you know, this makes me feel bad. I'm, I'm going to get off this drug. Usually is this it's a lifelong medication. Yes, it, it is. is. So, okay. yeah. So this is another thing to be aware of is, you know, you look at, let's say cholesterol lowering drugs. You look at, um, you look at blood pressure lowering drugs you have to stay on the drug to maintain the benefit. And that, you know, you look at diet, if you go on a diet, you have to stay on the diet to maintain the benefit. And so this drug is the same, you know, we don't have a pill that permanently fixes obesity. So yes, it is something that you have to stay on. And they've, they've, this has also been shown in these randomized trials. If you withdraw the drug, people, will regain most or all of the weight. So yes, it is something that has to be taken on an ongoing basis. And that's a problem because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you talked at the beginning of the show that uh, you're no longer in this area of study. You've migrated to something else that is a passion of yours, Red Pen Reviews. And I'd love to give you some space to talk about that. Yeah, thank you. So Red Pen Reviews, is a nonprofit organization that publishes the most informative, consistent, and unbiased reviews of popular nutrition books available. So what we do, we're, we're a team of expert volunteers that um, finds popular nutrition books that people are you know, really talking about, really into, a lot of people are reading. And we try to provide the public and professionals with the best information possible 
on the information quality in those books. So is this book, is it scientifically accurate? Is it using citations in an accurate way? Is the advice that it's giving healthy? So we have a structured scoring method that we go through that gives books numerical scores in those three areas. And then we publish these reviews where you can land on the page. And the first thing you see are numerical score bars for scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and healthfulness. So literally in you know five seconds, you can land on this page and come away with a pretty good idea of the information quality of that book. But if you want to dive deeper, you can go to the summary at the top, the text summary, or if you want to go all the way, we have our entire scoring for each book, including exactly why we gave it the scores that we gave it, including click through citations to scientific literature for everything that we did quotes and page numbers from the book to support, you know, to show that we're accurately representing what's in the book. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's just basically book reviews reinvented to be more informative than, you know, anything that you can find elsewhere. Well, there must have been a burr under your saddle that made you target these health food books because <laughs> uh, you go, you just don't go and say, hey, maybe I'll do this. So uh, tell me, with the books that you reviewed, uh, you don't have to be specific, but are we leaning more towards good quality material that is coming out or is a lot of it a revenue stream for somebody who has a social media following? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely leaning toward misinformation in in this in the nutrition book publishing sphere. So, but it really depends on the angle that you look at it. So, if you look at scientific accuracy, so basically how you know how closely are people hewing to the scientific literature on the topic that they're discussing? It's it's bad. The state of the publishing industry and in nutrition is bad. So, we've published. 17 reviews so far and of those 11 of them received a scientific accuracy score below 50 percent so that's really really bad that we flag that as as red on the score bar it's if it's below 50 percent, it's red um and so but on the other hand if you look at healthfulness so how good is the what impact will the advice in the book have on your health, actually, most of them, um, I don't remember what the exact number was, but most of them actually do reasonably well in that. So basically, and you know, let me clarify that we're comparing their advice against the standard average, uh, you know, industrial Western diet. So it's a low bar that they have to clear, but nevertheless, pretty much all, almost all of these books are giving diet advice that would probably be an improvement over how the average person eats. So it's, you know, it's not necessarily that they're giving terrible diet advice. They're just not good at justifying it with evidence. They're kind of spreading, uh, you know, misinformation about how the diet works and about how health in general works even though the actual advice they're giving is not necessarily bad advice. So that's kind of the, the big picture. So you're going to be the zygote of nutrition books. That's people are going to be craving your ratings as, as a, <laughs> a bar of comparison. Now is um, red pen reviews open to anybody or these just professional reviews um, that, that are looked at or sorry, professionals that are able to look at, or can anyone sign up so, for the, the reviews? Yeah, so they're freely available on the internet. So all you have to do is go to redpenreviews.org and they're all there freely accessible. We're a nonprofit organization, so we really exist to serve the public. And that includes the general public as well as nutrition professionals. And we really try to structure the reviews to make them accessible to anyone. So you land on the review page and at the very top, there's the book cover, and then there's the score bars next to it. And the score bars, it's got a percentage by it. It's color-coded. It's really like anyone 
can see that and understand what it means. There's no, you know, you don't have to have any kind of expert knowledge to understand what that means. And then below that is a summary of our review. And we also really try to make that as accessible as possible to anyone so that, you know, regardless of knowledge level, you can land on the page and understand what the book is about and why we gave it the scores that we did. Just a really quick summary. Then below that, it gets a little bit more technical. So we have summaries of each scoring section. Those are kind of medium level in terms of how technical they are. And then if you expand the scoring sections to see exactly why we gave each score and what the you know, scientific evidence was that we cited, that is more technical. And I'm not saying that you have to be an expert. You really don't have to be an expert. But I think you know, depending on who you are, there might be some parts in that that are a little bit more challenging. I think anyone could read through and probably understand most of it, if not all of it but we don't put as much effort into that part to make it accessible to, to really everyone. Mm -hmm. But well, the way I see it is that there's something, there's something for everybody on each review page. And it's a, it's a wonderful resource. Uh, I've, I've gone through and, and looked Thank you. at some of the reviews. So congratulations. Great conversation. Thank you so much. I think it's a, it's eye-opening, I think, for um, for us to understand the different pathways to obesity. Um, and then, you know, transferring over to what you're doing now. I think it's a great service to people. So I thank you so much, uh, Stefan, for joining us today. Okay. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kathy. Everybody will talk to you next week on the health hub. been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.